Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I really never get tired of that scream. It's really good. <laughs> funny. Oh, if he only knew what was going to happen the day after that came out of his stupid mouth. <laughs> Poor Howard Dean. <laughs> Oh, welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And we have senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, with us. Hi, Tom. Great to be back. It's been a long time. Your anti libertarian leanings have probably blossomed in my absence. <laughs> I'm, here to counter, I'm here to counteract all of that negative movement oh, starting right now. Thank God. <laughs> Before we go down that road, uh, all the fun stuff, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, beer suggestions, uh, comments, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped uh, that you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, the podcast itself, uh, Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then if you're a new listener... Or a returning one, because we like you guys, too, still. Um, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is uh, a real-money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, we use it all the time uh, to kind of look into the topics that we're going to discuss, see what people are thinking about it, where they're putting their money, uh, and the likelihood of some of the outcomes. Um, what's great for Barstool Politics listeners, uh, if you open up a new account, uh, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predict It will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predict It, which is awesome. I, I would love an extra $40 right now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. all my tax return is very low this year. It's very <laughs> Actually, it's higher this year. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, just use the... Uh, Promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barsupal20 uh, and get your free money. Um, yeah, thanks, Predictit. We love you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we even started, <laughs> we're supposed to be really knowledgeable and, and, and up to date on all the topics um, that Bill is, is nice enough to put together <laughs> for us. And we kind of glance at him when we have time, like the day before, or like I said, uh, in, in, in the bathroom at work for like two or three minutes uh, prior to driving here. Um, but we're going to do our best. And we have Tom here, which helps tremendously. This is, this is the expert analysis that everybody's yeah. looking for. Stop. <laughs> um, Stop yeah. it. Let's let's just dive in. So we're going to, we're going to start on uh, start talking about immigration and the southern border, where there's been some interesting legal and political issues heating up. Uh, this last week, Trump cleaned house at the Department of Homeland Security, firing Secretary Nielsen just three days after removing the actor acting director of Immigration and Custom Enforcement, ICE. Uh, Trump suggested he wanted to move in a tougher direction. 
tough. He wants to get tough on immigration. Uh, he's clearly frustrated with his team's inability to overcome the legal constraints that have hampered the implementation of his immigration agenda. Trump has lost legal battles on the policy of family separation, forcing asylum seekers to enter at port of entries. And most recently, a federal judge ruled that the Trump administration can no longer return asylum seekers to Mexico before and between hearings in their asylum cases. Trump has responded by resorting to some unconventional tactics, including suggesting uh, we should get rid of immig immigration judges, announcing that our country is full, please go home, uh, and threatening to close down the border in El Paso. It does feel like the administration has run into a legal wall, Nick, pun intended. I see. Because uh, <laughs> it's the wall. That the president is looking to find individuals will find a way over, around, or through this wall. All of this is playing out while the Supreme Court is set to hear a case on the upcoming census and whether the Trump administration can add a question that would ask whether a person is a citizen of the United States. Why don't we start with some reactions to the recent developments and then circle back to this really important question of the census. Tom, as I was reflecting on events this week, I found myself thinking that the most consequential battle right now isn't necessarily Trump and the Democrats, but between Trump and the law. Uh, what's your sense of this and the administration's legal struggles on administration? Or I'm sorry, on immigration. Im immigration. <laughs> we'll save the administration about, later. <laughs> talk about yeah. the struggle save with themselves. Save that other one. Yeah. Well, uh, your title was exactly right. He fought the law and he lost. Mm -hmm. uh, the law won. Uh, as I thought about this, I was reminded that uh, President Obama's record in the courts was very poor as well. Uh, and I don't mean poor in terms of, uh, you know, quality of decision, but presidents have not fared well where their policies have moved through the courts for the last uh, you know, almost 20 years. So this isn't new uh, and in a, a lot of areas. I'd start by saying, I, is it clear to everybody that there is a crisis on the southern border, that somebody has to do something about it, and that to follow a theme, Congress's failures in this area are so comprehensive and indefensible that one can't exaggerate uh, the horrors of, of their job, that it just <coughs> is absolutely awful. Um, and you can't solve this problem, at least the courts can't, without changes to the law. Mm -hmm. So whatever side of the, the immigration questions you're on, the courts have fairly narrow guidance here. and. I don't think the decisions they're making are political as much as they are guided by the law they have in front of them. Some of it is subject to interpretation, but um, most of what has happened is courts saying, this is the law Congress has given us, we're obligated to follow it, and we are. Mm -hmm. uh, that mitigates against many of the president's hopes, I think, uh, but I, my, my sense is it's not a problem with the courts overreaching or that sort of thing. Um, as much as it is Congress's uh, willful failure to address either the narrow question of the definition of asylum uh, and, and the uh, characteristics of, of the person who's seeking it, or the broader question of what do we do about immigration. Um, this business of I'm, the, the country's full, I just I can't resist <laughs> that one, <laughs> just while we're on the top. Uh, there are more jobs in America today than people, and the idea that uh, were full just seems to me to be so silly on its face. Uh, it won't be the first time this or other presidents have said things that are that silly. But the pressure on Congress to solve the problem of there are more jobs than people and there are people that want those jobs. If we could just simply sort out uh, a safe, easy way uh, to manage immigration, this should not be as hard, it seems to me, as it is. There's a shared interest in full employment, and, and providing uh, a labor workforce. 
Judges can't do that without changes to the law. So this is in Congress's lap. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. Mm-hmm. Phil? Hey. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's so many things to say. I, 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 I agree with, with Tom. I mean, this is something that has to be... Uh, I, I'm encouraged by the fact I, I, I can understand why Trump is frustrated that he can't get what he wants done done. But I'm encouraged by the fact that courts are you know but the the the, this is what courts should be doing right it's not about we think your the ideology of your policy is good or bad it's about hey this is this is the law um and so you if you want to reduce immigration you want to deal with that that's fine but you have to do it within these constraints right that's the whole idea of the rule of law and so i'm i'm encouraged to see that actually you know being upheld and and then you're right. This is a discussion that we've known needs to take place. It's been it's a discussion that it seems like was taking place about immigration reform several years ago. And then I don't know, it feels like Congress or the American people have gotten frustrated. Uh, and I, maybe this is the notion that you know, of a romantic past that never existed. But it seems like at the in the past, at some point, you would have had two different sides who had different ideas, and they come together and negotiate and come up with some sort of compromise solution. And it feels like we are in this day and age now of partisanship and whatnot, in which we just get frustrated with the other side and throw up our hands and decide it can't be settled. Um, and so we have a problem that is not being dealt with, right? The, the idea of coming to some sort of uh, conclusion. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I it's it's I, it feels like again to me with Trump, it, it it feels like this isn't I don't know what what you all think about this, but it it doesn't feel like it's about the this this has taken on a bigger significance, right? This is a, an ideal. I think about what you were saying about the country is full. It's just it's not right. Mm-hmm. I, I live in New Hampshire <laughs> where the population is declining, right? Where there's not you know at the higher ed we don't the the number of college age students is decreasing and is going to continue to decrease. I've been to Wyoming, right? There is plenty of room. Uh, that the country is full. It's just not true. So, it, I mean, it feels like this has become in that sense, this, uh, it's not actually a, on its surface. It's a battle of policy, but really underneath it's this poly, it's a, it's a battle of, uh, concepts about what is America and what should it look like. And, and, and I think that's part of the reason why we can't come to a solution about it. Does that make sense? It, mm-hmm. it does. When you go back and, you know, you see these videos of Ronald Reagan talking about immigration, uh, even, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush talking about immigration. It's, it was a much more, it felt like things could get done, right? It wasn't that we shut down borders. In many ways, like Bill Clinton was a, a more of a immigration hawk than some Republicans were going back in time. And it's, So it, was Obama. Yeah, right. It feels like yeah. that sort of has flipped in that way. Uh, yeah, so it, it, I think this is not just Congress's problem now, but this is Congress's problem for the last 20 years where they mm-hmm. keep kicking the can down the road hoping somebody else is going to fix it but you knew this was eventually going to happen yeah. uh, and then the, the question is how do you go about solving it i i don't think trump's proposals are necessarily my favorite solutions um but something has to be done right uh, 
Nick? Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I'm of the mindset that the country is full, and I would like to kind of parcel out the land a little bit more, so I have some, some of that Wyoming space sounds fantastic. It's supposed to be very picturesque. Um, so in, governmental land redistribution? You're yeah. a socialist now. <laughs> but well, if it's full, it's because for I was just going to say, uh, 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 Phil just gave a full-throated uh, support for strict constructionism <laughs> as to the way these trial judges are ending immigration law. So um, my presence on the podcast has already moved Phil to the right. <laughs> or I should say, toward the libertarian way of thinking. Um, the law says a thing, therefore we should do it. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, with immigration judges, I, I agree that um, they should uh, not exist anymore, specifically from San Francisco only. Because, um, and I, I'm being flippant about that, but um, as much as, I, as we're, we're talking about that, the judicial system... Um, and the uh, judicial branches is, is kind of taking up the mantle of, of what is existing policy and, and, and legislation and the law. Um, it does seem that this kind of hyper-partisan um, minefield that we find ourselves in has trickled into specific areas of the country and specific judicial um, segments more than it has others. And when most of these decisions uh, in terms of temporary injunctions and and challenges to the president's policies seem to be coming out of the same areas over and over again i think it's hard to separate the two and again this goes back to tom's original point that and all of our points realistically that this is congress's problem and they refuse to do anything about it so i think that as much as judges are trying to uphold the laws that exist they're also kind of wading into more of a, a policy shaping um, area and, and, and challenging area, policy uh, challenging area, um, just because the, the policy itself is, is garbage and hasn't changed in, in decades at this point and needs to fundamentally change. And, and Congress needs to do something yeah. about it so we can agree on a policy that they can then decide sure. if, if a, a, a treatment or usage of it is is legally permissible. Right, and leaving this to the courts to decide isn't the right decision. I will say, you know, it depends on which case we're talking about, but the, you know, the one area he lost on the forcing uh, uh, refugees to go to ports of entry, the law was clear there. I mean, the, the U.S. law itself said you do not have to enter at a port of entry. So some of these, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear where the, the judges are going to come down on this. And I, I would even to defend some of those within his administration, uh, Nielsen being one of them, where, I mean, she is a hawk on immigration. Mm -hmm. But she apparently was even telling Trump that you're going to lose these things. You know, this is not this is not liberal justices that are going to push against you. This is that you're going to be you're going to run into the law. Mm -hmm. And his solution to this is to get rid of them and bring in people who are going to get tougher. But I, I don't think this is going to change. No matter who he brings in, the reality is the law is the law. And until Congress takes up something or or he does it through an executive order or whatnot. I mean, I think he's kind of stuck here. Mm -hmm. But from Trump's perspective, I think that's exactly what he wants to have, mm -hmm. right? This is a narrative he's produced before. Me against the judiciary. Me against Congress. Me against something. Uh, so I think he knows going in he's going to lose. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think he thought any of these cases were going to go his way. If they did, so much the better. But if they don't, there's fodder for the campaign, right? I'm trying to do the work I told you I'd do as I ran. It's these judges keeping me from doing it. Mm -hmm. Plaintiffs are forum shopping to find Ninth Circuit judges who will rule in their favor. There might be some truth to that, but I, I think he, he sees himself benefiting from losing 
more than he does from winning. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That doesn't help solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It may help his political prospects, right? Mm -hmm. It may help him in 2020, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really address the long-term concerns. Mm -hmm. So congressional Democrats can hide behind judges making these decisions and not change the law because they're winning on the, the law. Right. But that, that that's a I mean at a higher level that's a bigger concern though right yeah. I, I think you're yeah. right that I mean he you know picking a fight with with the courts um, is a from a political uh, angle with his base at least is a winning you know is a winning strategy right. for him um, but it's it's you know it's the thing that has concerned me for so long with Trump I mean his, his so you know it's not a surprise to our listeners that some of you know a lot of his policies are concerning to me but more than the policies is this approach to government right this idea of of me and i need to win and that's more important than the the rule of law so that that you know you can i i don't know i i worry about the overall damage that's done you know he he sees this as a winning political strategy the you know like you said maybe the democrats see it as a strategy they don't have to do something controversial courts will do it for him mm-hmm. for them but in the end what the the loss is the the rule of law and the norms of of you know of government if you if you destroy or undermine um the faith of of the american people in in the leg in well not just the legislature but in the judicial branch and all of this i mean that's the long-term stuff that we're left with here yeah, um, that's yeah. what that's what scares the hell out of me with Trump is is that that aspect of it. Well, so we're going to come later in the podcast to the question of life tenure for federal judges, and I think I would just uh, mention at this point here's one of the good reasons to have it. Uh, I think smart people watching what's happening in the courts are saying they're doing their jobs, even if the other two branches aren't. So maybe in a sort of perverse way, pushing them to make these decisions and even running on the idea that they did might compel at least some Americans to say one branch is doing what we have asked it to do. Apply the law as Congress gave it to them uh, without uh, putting a gloss on top of it that makes it their opinion rather than Congress's. And maybe that's excessively optimistic thinking, but... um, (laughs) Yeah. It's a start. (laughs) It's a start. Why why don't we try? I want to have some time to talk about the census. Tom, do you want to kind of present us what's going on with the census, and then we can talk a bit about the legal implications of that? Yeah, the court, uh, and I feel like we may have mentioned this just as a point of interest in a previous uh, podcast, took a question or took a case involving the question of whether or not the uh, Commerce Secretary can add to the 2020 census a question on whether or not a person is an American citizen. Uh, This has not gone through a full appellate review because the 2020 census looms and uh, there isn't time. So interestingly enough, one of the things that we've come to before is the importance of a full uh, and well-developed record before the Supreme Court decides a case, but here they don't have the luxury of doing that. There's two questions in front of the court in the case. The first one is whether or not Uh, This question will produce an undercount because people are afraid to answer the question. And the second is whether or not uh, Wilbur Ross acted in a way that was arbitrary and capricious when he added the question uh, to the census. Um, It's always chancy, you know, to predict Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court on a thing. But a couple things occur to me. The first one is the secretary is given enormous latitude with respect to the conducting of the census. And so I could imagine the court saying, as we just said about other aspects of immigration, the law is pretty clear here that the Commerce Secretary owns this and he can make judgments about what the census form looks like. 
Um, and I go on and say, there's an awful lot of support for doing this. All of Western Europe asks this question. Uh, virtually every country in it, uh, and I won't go through the whole list, Mexico asks it, Canada asks it. So you're not an outlier when on a census you ask as a person a citizen. I go on and say the UN recommended asking it. So in 2017, they did a, a long document. It was something to the effect of principles and recommendations with respect to housing and population censuses. And they overtly said, uh, we recommend asking country of birth and country of citizenship. So uh, there are a lot of ways Americans are outliers relative to the law. Asking this question isn't one of them. And the reason I say all of that is, with the court not having a fully developed record, I could imagine them saying, in, in the presence of a pretty clear uh, uh, statement of authority for the Commerce Secretary and being in what could be described as the mainstream when one asks the question, we're not prepared to tell uh, Commerce that it can't do this. Which would allow it to stay. The Which question would, would be it to in. Stay. Last thing I'd say is that the government uh, has made the argument that the undercount uh, is speculative. And, and those who are suing have not produced evidence that would suggest that it will, in fact, produce an undercount. It might. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, pretty clear what their argument is. But uh, in the absence of clear evidence that that's the case, and there's some arguments that it isn't, um, I, I, again, I hate to predict, yeah. but I could see the Supreme Court saying, we're going to stay out of this. Go ahead, Bill. No, no, you go. You got a question. I got it. No, so I mean, my 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 thought as you were talking about that, the the fact that Europe uses it, I, I can't help but think that it's um, it it's slightly different. I don't know that the difference matters, right? So it, it, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But you know, in within the EU, uh, I think part of the critique is that if you're asking a citizenship question, there's a negative aspect to that. Within the EU, there's not an illegality related to. I mean, there there could be, but oftentimes you have you know. Polish citizens who are living in France, um, there's nothing illegal about that, right? You sure. have free movement of peoples. And so asking about citizenship helps the EU track the movement of people and it relates to, you know, funding and all sorts of other stuff. Um, now, I don't know if that, I don't know if that matters. I, I guess here's my, here's my legal question. I can understand where an undercount is a statistical problem, right? As a stat, as like a, as a social scientist, as someone who wants like, to get at you know an understanding of the facts on the ground, if you ask a question that people don't want to answer and end up with an undercount, that leaves you with a misrepresentation of reality, right? So uh, you you come back with numbers that say that there are fewer people living in California than there actually are because people are afraid to respond to the census. Mm -hmm. um, how does that become a legal issue? Like, what's the what's mm -hmm. the legal challenge involved in that? So. In other words, I, I can see where that means the census might be inaccurate, but why would that make it illegal or a, or a problem from a legal perspective? Yeah, actually, I think uh, from a legal perspective, an equally interesting question is, is this ripe for judicial intervention now? Because an injury hasn't occurred yet. And so I think the answer, Phil, to your question is, if you're the people of California and an undercount produces a shift in house seats and that produces a shift in either mm -hmm. taxes paid in, taxes paid back, or something like that, you have standing to sue because you've got a tangible, <coughs> quantifiable loss. I don't know, it'd be very difficult to adduce the evidence that you've actually had an undercount. I don't know how you prove that. It's like proving somebody didn't commit sure. a crime because mm -hmm. there's the death penalty. But at least you'd be able to say there was a shift in House representation that may have produced a shift in 
funding or something like that for California. That's not true yet. So really what we're, we're looking at is speculative potential harm. And one could imagine the Supreme Court even saying on a case like this, uh, there isn't an injury yet. And those who are pursuing the case have not suffered any harm until there is an undercount. And therefore, we'll address this at whatever point there is evidence that that took place and affected citizens of a state. And I think you're right, California, uh, New York, uh, these are some of the states that are most likely to be negatively affected. Um, Does the fact do you, that it's 10 years before the next census, is that is the duration, yeah. the longevity there, does that? Is yeah. that, that was the um, I was yeah. gonna say, but it's not like you can correct that sure. uh, expeditiously. Mm -hmm. So uh, if an undercount costs California 20 house seats or something like that, that's cast in stone for 10 years. And I imagine the other side of the court might say, uh, if there is uh, a plausible argument that a meaningful undercount is going to occur and that that would shift House seats, we're prepared to enjoin the question to prevent a permanent harm from occurring. Sure. If we go back to your beloved Constitution, yes. the wording, it doesn't say... Just yours. We, we, uh, we, one <laughs> yeah. should always go back to my beloved Constitution. Well, that's what I'm thinking here, because I'm thinking about other ways that you could, you could bring this up or this might be concerning. The Constitution doesn't say, doesn't say you count citizens, right? They say it has to be an accurate count of individuals, right? It doesn't make that distinction between citizens or non-citizens. Is that grounds to say that they're asking, are you a citizen? But the Constitution says you just need an accurate counting of, of those living in the mm -hmm. country. Yeah, I think it's and, a very compelling argument. Yes. And the asking of citizen, that, I guess that's where the undercount comes in, mm -hmm. is that if you ask about citizenship, mm -hmm. then it affects the accurate part of the mm -hmm. yeah. question. Well, it might. Uh, but, but remember, we asked this question on, uh, and now the name is the, the American something survey, also done by the government. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name. And, and what we're doing here is shifting the question to the census form from that one. So uh, we do ask this question, and, and the statistical evidence relative to that instrument is that it has not produced an undercount right. or changed the number of people who respond to it. So uh, to say that the, the, the undercount is speculative and to say that the damages it might occur even if there is an undercount are speculative is significant. Um, and I don't know that the framers took the position, the framers weren't looking at uh, the question of whether there were very significant numbers uh, of people present in the country illegally, mm -hmm. which is what, I don't know what, 12 million or something yeah. like that is the number. Um, and, and I suspect that on one side of the court, the feeling will be exactly what Phil has said. Listen, this is an account of citizens, it's account of residents. On the other side, uh, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Bucklew, I think we'll look to what the framers were considering, and that is how many people are around, mm -hmm. but they didn't have a question of illegal immigration in the same sense that we do today. Mm -hmm. so, so the constitutional context in which they were operating is so different than this one. I wonder whether or not yeah. parsing that word will, will matter. So you, you've, you've sort of expressed a, a number of ways that the court could come down on the Trump administration's side. Is that your prediction? Is that what you think they'll do, or you, you're unsure? Like, do you have a sense of where you think they'll go with this? I, boy, I'll tell you, I, I, the, the thing that would be most interesting for me to do on Predict It is to start <laughs> put, uh, putting money on Supreme Court cases because they're, they're famously difficult uh, to predict. Um, 
Here, I think Bill's point might be the one that carries the day, and that is that the damage done, if, if they're persuaded there's an undercount, is a 10-year mm -hmm. problem. Uh, Congress can't fix that. The courts can't fix You can't reapportion House seats after a census. Um, uh, so I'm loath to predict. <laughs> let me say, if somebody said, you must, before you leave, predict, I'd be inclined to say that they may enjoin the question. Because of that, because, because of the, the time Because frame. of the potential 10-year damage cause. Yeah. But, but I come back to, there's been no evidence produced that there have been undercounts because of citizenship questions before. And, and that may carry the day. Hmm. Can, can I ask a clarifying question real quick? Um, there, there have been several, you talked about how the, the record hasn't been you know, established fully, but mm -hmm. there have been a number of lower courts who have ruled against this, correct? Mm -hmm. There have been yeah, two yeah. or three decisions. What, what is the, uh, wh what's the basis that they have decided that on? Like what, what was the reason that they mm -hmm. ruled against? The one we've talked about, the undercount and undercount. the potential 10 year damage. Um, they've also said that the Secretary of Commerce acted in a way that was arbitrary and capricious. And, and I just want to say something to that. Uh, courts have long taken the position that trying to read people's minds is a bad idea. Yeah. And, and I think they should continue to take that position. That is, what was in his head when he wrote that question? And we've heard this sort of thing said about other uh, contexts. What was Donald Trump thinking when sort of thing? Um, <clears throat> you can predict it. You can think you know it because you know a person's way of thinking. Uh, but boy, when courts start to get into the business of reading minds to say, well, this was a really mean thing to do and he meant it to be mean, as opposed to this was a really excellent thing to do and he had pure motivations when he wrote it, that's a troubling thing. The math of an undercount and the math of shifting seats is a much more firm uh, sort of ground on which to make sure. a decision here. That's really this interesting. This is why, oh, go ahead. <laughs> this is why when we get those chips in our brain, it'll be really useful. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> well, it's a kind of circle back to uh, the beginning of our conversation here. Well, the court, I think you're right. The court shouldn't think like what was Wilbur Ross, was, it was mm -hmm. him, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, or Trump thinking when they push this agenda, but can they take the broader context of immigration into their own deliberations to say that Trump is, he wants to cut down immigration and it's it's likely, or one interpretation of this, adding this question, is that, that it would reduce the number of people in uh, highly minority districts, right? I mean, can we, can we make that connection within this broader context that this I might be they politically? Won't. They wouldn't, okay. I, I think they won't. I they think won't, they, I, yeah. I don't mean to say they wouldn't. Uh, the, the court's been very cautious. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a theme, again, yeah. that's come up many times. And I, I, my suspicion here is that they are not going to want to make a grand big ticket decision that somehow either repudiates uh, an immigration ideology or that supports an immigration yeah. ideology. And I don't think they have to do that to solve this problem. So I think they won't. Yeah. I, my guess, oh, I'm sorry. No, Nick, go I ahead. Feel no, like please I'm go ahead. Too much no, no, no. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing uh, the argument from the other side, I think, is one that the conservatives are going to buy. Uh, sort of Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch maybe Kavanaugh and Roberts, and that is, uh, if the statute delegates to the Commerce Secretary the right to write the census, then we're gonna go with that. That is, don't let's try and read in, and, and boy, when we talk about the Bucklew case, that's what Gorsuch did. This was strict constructionism on steroids in the death penalty case we'll come to. And I can imagine in this case that there's a similar approach to it. We got a law, it delegates the authority, 
and we're not going to try and get, and get inside this guy's head and decide mm -hmm. what his motivation was for adding the question. <clears throat> Remember, the Voting Rights Act has been invoked here, mm -hmm. and that is that they don't just say we're, we want to know how many non-citizens and citizens are here. Um, the argument the administration is making, and I think many think that it's a pretext, is it will help them enforce the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, I, I, I mean, like you said, it's realistically if you read between the lines you know what the the, the answer or the reasoning is behind this decision but you could very easily say uh, from an uh, opposing point of view that we need to know how many non-legal citizens are in the country on h1b visas or something mm -hmm. like that to understand what the the current makeup is of our workforce and decide if we need to uh, increase the numbers of, of those types right. of legal entry points. Right. Um, I, I yeah. I, as much as I, I'm most likely of, uh, I'm of the mindset that we know what this is about. But I, I, attempting to do anything other than enforce the law as it stands for this particular case, given how much leeway that the administration has in this current situation, it's just, it's not. I just don't think it's worth the battle. But it's it's a big one though, right? I yeah. mean, however, this I guess we, it could be a big it could be a big case depending on what happens with that census. So uh, and the numbers and all of that, it would be fascinating to see if we could fast forward ten years, yeah. see what happens with the data, then yeah. come back to this point. I'm yeah. frightened to see yeah. what's going to happen in ten years. <laughs> we should we should talk beer. Phil, you look like you were drinking a wonderful beer there. I am. And a big can of it to boot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Phil's going crawler today, I think. It's, it's not even a tall boy. Uh, so I'm having um, a beer from Trillium Brewing, which is in Massachusetts, and I've had several of their beers. They are pretty consistently pretty great. Um, this is uh, Fort Point Pale Ale. I haven't had this one before. Um, now, my disclaimer is that as I was telling these three guys before we came on the air, I had a long day, so um, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted a beer. Um, uh, and so maybe that influences my decision, but I, I really like this. This is this is really nice. I, I like, it, we've talked about in the past that uh, there's so many pale ales, they all start to kind of blur together in, in, in some ways, but um, this one was really, really good. I mean, it's hoppy, but it's not like over the top. It's not bitter. Um, it's got a little bit more carbonation than a lot of them, and a lot of times I don't like that, but it's, it works really well with this one. It's, you know, citrusy. Um, it's all the things that I like in a pale ale. It's, it's good. I'd, I'd recommend going and, and picking one up. That's good. Yeah. Tom, Tom, do you want to tell us about the first beer we sampled? Yeah. Uh, this is a transient artisan ale beer. We've had them before. They're Bridgman, Michigan, and I think this is one of the five best breweries in the Midwest. He is just off the charts good. The beer is Life is Hectic. Uh, which for me right now can't possibly be better uh, description. It's a coffee cream stout, um, and it's magnificent. It was, it was, so it was wonderful. Just magnificent. Oh. Uh, just the right coffee, mm -hmm. bitterness. Uh, it's not a stout that's so roasty. Uh, it, it's was just, it heavy at all? It's not no. too heavy. Crisp. It's, it's, uh, that really nice sweetness you, these, to these it. These guys mm -hmm. at this brewery are so good. It, it's hard to do that too. I mean, we drink oh. a lot of beers, and and not all of them are good. And that right. is just oh, it's that was just, spectacular. It's, it's magnificent. What was the so actual name of this one, Tom? Life is hectic. Got it. Oh. <laughs> and so we sampled that, and then our second beer we tried. Uh, it was from Dovetail Brewery, and this was their Vienna style lager. Oh. 
You've had this one before. I had yeah. this. Is this Dovetails is really, really good? Yeah. I love their motto: "We brew like monks, minus the vows." <laughs> <laughs> so, it, this and was, the Belgian yeast, as yeah, it turns that's right. out, which yeah. is also a good thing. So, so lagers and uh, lagers have gotten so much better, right? There's mm-hmm. so much more to them oh, now, yeah. and this this is it's delicious. Uh, yeah, it really is. Nick, did you like this one? I did. It had it. It, it didn't feel like a, a standard Vienna lager to me. It had this. This very distinct taste to it, yeah. and I can't put my finger on it. Like it feels like something I've I've had before, but it's mm. completely separate from a standard Vienna Lager. It was really good. Mm-hmm. I just cannot put my finger on what that other note is in it. It it, it feels like there's more going on. Like in what you talk about pale ales, or there's that's where you think all of this stuff is mm-hmm. happening, and yeah. this feels like it's trending in that direction. So mm-hmm. Just just wonder, but also probably light. some caramel malt. Yeah, this. a little bit of that. Yeah. Gives yeah. it some color and some... Yeah, they say rich, caramel-toned, inviting. Interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Said it much better than I did, didn't I? <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, download Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics, and you'll find all of our reviews on there. Speed rounds? Let's do speed round. All Ooh. right. So we're going to start with some free speech on campus. So... Uh, President Trump signed an executive order last month, which he said was necessary to protect the freedom of speech on college campuses. By the way, I'm going to have to talk for at least half of the time going forward. <laughs> right. So I can't. Uh, he was surrounded. Anymore. <laughs> That's right. He was surrounded by student activists who had who had said conservative views are suppressed at universities. Trump said he was taking quote historic action to defend American students and American values that have been under siege. The order itself does not mandate any dramatic change, but was welcomed by those who say universities are fostering an unbalanced, liberal indoctrination of students. The order was attacked by those who say freedom of inquiry is a fundamental tenet of higher education, one that government should not have any role in defining. This is a topic we've touched on in the past, but we've never had a chance to kick it around with our senior legal analyst, Tom (laughs) Cavanaugh. So, Tom, free speech is one of your most beloved concepts. What do you make of all of this? There were 12 disciples. <laughs> Some were more beloved than others, as you know. And of course, free speech is to the disciples. I'm going to have two analogies of the week. This free speech is to the disciples uh, what John was to Jesus, the most beloved of all of them. I, I'm nearly a free speech absolutist, but I, I would say this. I recognize that colleges need to maintain order. And, and balancing those two uh, sometimes polar opposites is really hard. So I don't, we don't need to rehearse the whole First Amendment and public squares and that sort of thing. But I would say this. I don't think this executive order defines uh, free expe- expression on college campuses. Mm-hmm. I think it endeavors to promote it. Uh, there's nothing in it. I've, I, I've, I've read the order itself. There's nothing in it that says, uh, you know, we need more right-wing speakers or, or that sort of thing. It uses very general language to say, uh, we are sending lots of money to college campuses and we want them to be places that are free and open for a wide range of perspectives. So I think it tries to advance viewpoint diversity, which in my judgment is the kind we most lack Mm -hmm. on college campuses. There's been a lot of debate about this with uh, in legal circles and and a book recently by Erwin Chemerinsky, who is um, a free speech expert. He's a Berkeley uh, law professor. Um, he takes a position that there is no crisis of uh, free speech in higher ed. And I'm, I'm going to just suggest my second analogy of, uh, of the week, and I, I, that's like asking somebody who's colorblind to pick the paint for the next room. Uh, that is, I don't think he can see. Thinking gray. Yeah. 
Analogies are a beautiful thing, are they not? <laughs> You're going to throw a pun at us every now and then. Yeah, I got to right. have an analogy of yeah. the week. But, but here's what I'm after. Um, Jim Riski uh, sort of went about how many disinvites are there and, and is there a, a spiking in the number of those? I think Phil and I have tangled a little bit about whether <clears throat> right or left pushes back harder on speech and set all those things aside. I think what, what he misses and what a lot of people miss is the quiet uh, heckler's veto which is the sort of um, subtle uh, pushback against perspectives on campus. And uh, I, I don't know that I describe it as a crisis, but I think I would say that college campuses are not places where robust conversations about differing values and conflicting rights take place. And I welcome an effort to try to push us in a direction that increases viewpoint diversity. And I think that's what this order does. You gonna take so that, I, Phil? <laughs> 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 well, I, I, I could, I mean, I have some comments on it, but I guess my, my first question is a, is a clarifying question, which is, what does this do? What are the implications of this? So, I mean, I, an executive order, right, is telling the executive branch how to do something, but other than some funding, uh, I, I, what what implication would this have for a local university right i mm -hmm. i'm not i mean i guess if if you could other than sort of reiterating that free speech is good does this actually have any you know implications for real life uh, the the first thing i'd say is that saying again that free speech is good is a really valuable thing mm -hmm. and saying it in a context where the the bully pulpit uh is is the place from which it's said is even better uh, having said that, think about the range of, say, dear colleague letters mm -hmm. that have addressed things like Title IX. I don't think that the there's not enough specificity in this executive order to start withholding financial aid uh, or other government money if a speaker is pushed off of a <clears> campus. <throat> there is, however, I think, an instruction to the Department of Ed to start paying attention to it. So let's imagine, for example, that Berkeley, uh, which is not a hotbed of viewpoint diversity, I think we can all agree, continues to be that. Perhaps what happens next is, on the, on the strength of an executive order, um, then you do get a dear colleague letter that suggests they've got to make some judgments, uh, maybe not judgments, some assessment of who speaks, who doesn't, why do they, why don't they, and in the absence of evidence that they are welcoming of all positions, maybe then government funding is withheld. I don't think that happens without a dear colleague letter or something along those lines, but the executive order lays the scaffolding for that maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. So I, go ahead. My, my take on, on the whole free speech on college campuses is that I, I, there's, I don't think there's any doubt that there, there is a sort of left lean to college, but we've talked about this on on previous podcasts, which is that there's a lot. I feel like a lot of the perception of that in America is anecdotal, right? So we can point to Berkeley and talk about Berkeley, but we don't at the same time point to Liberty University or um, other places where there are strongly conservative uh, um, colleges. Who, you're your almost modern Texas A&M, right? We're very conservative, yeah. but um, so. I, I, I guess I think there's been there's been a fair amount of research that shows that faculty and my experience I, I critiqued anecdotal evidence but I'm, I'm going to use some as well. <laughs> my experience at, uh, at uh, you know the three different colleges, four different colleges I've been associated with, um, is that 
I, I, I guess I want to correct the perception that universities are out to do this. My experience is that is that colleges and universities are really um, worried about this. They're working actually yes. to try to make yeah. sure that they provide spaces for different types of speakers and and student perceptions. When you look at surveys of student perceptions, there's a strong correlation to where. Uh, oftentimes, I mean, I, I think, again, there are anecdotes and news stories of this kind of over-the-top liberal professor or whatever, but most students tend to perceive that their professors are like them, like they hear when their professor is talking that they're speaking you know, to them. And so I, I, I think the crisis of free speech, at, at I, I think it's important to consider free speech and aim for it, but I, I think the, cri the idea of a crisis is overblown. Mm -hmm. I also think there's an important distinction to be made between college campuses and the, the broader free speech conversations that occur there and the classroom, right? I, I feel like there, one tends to assume that because there maybe isn't the same type of free speech at a broader campus level that the classrooms themselves are always left-leaning. Yeah, that's and I, a great point. I, I don't think that's the case, right? I mean, I, even the most liberal professors that I meet, I feel in the classroom are pretty straightforward. Like, they're teaching their subject. It isn't mm -hmm. as if politics is infusing their, 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 their educational experience. But I think campuses themselves, you're absolutely right, that they tend to, to lean left. And to your earlier point, Tom, I think there are some legitimate logistical questions mm -hmm. to bringing certain speakers. You know when you bring mm -hmm. a conservative speaker on campus, it's, it could cost the university mm -hmm. lots and lots of money. And that's a, that's a real concern, for, especially for a private institution, mm -hmm. to, 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 weigh it, to weigh it. I mean, that's a problem in itself, though. Like, yeah. we don't hear about that with, quote-unquote, you know, liberal commentators or, or, or guests. I, I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think that this is a, a, a giant crisis, but there are significant flashpoints, Berkeley being among the top of them. <clears throat> and it's not just confined to the West Coast or, or, you know, extremely liberal universities on the East Coast. It's it seems to be more prevalent than it has been prior to or, or in, in previous generations where they're destroying their own campuses when there's a, a conservative commentator or provocateur or whatever you want to call them that comes in and they force them to leave and then there are riots and, and fights and, you know, a, a community is destroyed because of that. I, I do think that there is there is a problem and I do think there is a an increasing um, no, I, I don't even want to say liberal because liberal is not it's not a bad term. This hyper partisan, extremely left wing or even right wing. But I'll say more left wing. Um, just just streak that that we've seen, especially since 2016, that doesn't seem to be going away. And realistically, I, I think that this particular executive order should be pointed towards those, you know, consistent for lack of a better term, troublemakers mm -hmm. that just let this happen and and kind of influence the <clears throat> the debate that we have about free speech on college campuses, which I do think is a concern, but is not nearly as much of a, a concern in most places as it is with or, or compared to, you know, these handful of places that you hear about day in and day out. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I... I I think it's a problem. It's not a crisis. Uh, neither do I. And, and, an argument that Jeff Stone and some of the others that are really First Amendment scholars are making is that it would help us if the courts would better define what a limited public uh, accommodation is. So if you're at U of I and you're going to have a, a, a speaker who's going to address 100 undergraduate students, 
the idea that you have to uh, invite the public because you are a public college is part of the problem here. And, and their suggestion is that colleges should be given greater latitude to close the door to mm-hmm. non-students and non-community members when they are engaged in speech that's intended to advance educational interests. This has a lot of appeal to me. Um, I don't think people should be able to walk into my business law class, Mm -hmm. and I think there's some good reasons to think that you can have a cultural event that brings a person to campus, and you can uh, look at IDs on the way in. I realize that there are places where students, Middlebury is of course famous for, you know, the Mm -hmm. students are the problem, but you'd go a long way if you kept external agitators off college campuses uh, when they are there to shut down speech. And, and uh, this might be one of the ways courts could start to balance competing interests and give colleges an opportunity to, without being economically crippled, mm-hmm. uh, bring speakers to campus from a wide range of perspectives. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with that more. The idea that I, I really believe that in these circumstances, if you don't agree with the speech, the, the solution to that is more speech, right? The idea, it just it, it seems pretty obvious. You disagree with somebody, let them speak, and then show why they are wrong. See what happens when I get here. I got Phil to do strict constructionism a minute ago, and now all of a sudden we've got uh, Louis Brandeis no, over no, here right. to my left on free speech. Love, oh, my. Is this I, love all good, I love a good debate. <laughs> all right, let's move on. All right, so, uh, Tom, is this is, it, is the name Bucklaw or Buckle? Bucklew. Bucklew, okay. Mm-hmm. So last week the Supreme Court weighed in on an issue of capital punishment, and, and the stark divide within the court was on issue and on display. A conservative majority ruled against a Missouri death row inmate who said his rare medical condition could mean an agonizing death that would violate the Constitution's standard against cruel and unusual punishment. Tom, this got a lot of attention in the news this week. Uh, walk us through this, This why this is such an important yeah, case. It, it, and it really is an important case, less because of uh, the details and more because of what it signals about the direction the court's taking. It's a five to four opinion. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is the author of the opinion, joined by um, the more conservative members of the court. Um, And this is maybe the best example of strict constructionism versus evolving Constitution thinking that we've seen out of the court in years, uh, because it's a classroom uh, exercise in what the Eighth Amendment was, was intended by the framers to do. So let's just start by saying who Bucklew is and why it uh, is significant. Uh, He's been on death row for more than 20 years, uh, almost 25, Um, and this is not an actual innocence case, so we should dispense with the idea that Bucklew is trying to raise an innocence argument. Um, Bucklew has a very rare disease or or malady, I guess would be a better word, where he gets unstable blood-filled tumors in his throat, on his neck, and around his head. So those who have seen him will see that he has them on his lips, for example. Bucklew's argument is that when a lethal injection method is used, it will rupture these tumors and he will drown in his own blood. That's uh, that's, that's a terrible way to sort of put it, but this is what he's arguing to the court. Um, The court ruled against his Eighth Amendment claim, and it got a lot of press, and as is usually the case, they missed some of the big points. Here's one of them. Bucklew got a five-year stay of uh, execution, which is almost unheard of, uh, a length of time that long. Um, I mean, typically it's a stay until something happens, but Bucklew got years to produce something uh, that was an alternative method 
that he could demonstrate was less painful uh, than the one that the state was going to use to execute him. And he essentially wasted all five years doing nothing. Now, the reason I say it that way is I think his strategy was to waste all five years mm -hmm. and at the end of it say to the court again, this is going to be really painful to me. You can't do this to me. So what the Gorsuch opinion says, and it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting read, it's not that long, is, is a few things. First, the Eighth Amendment unequivocally permits the death penalty, and there is no plausible argument that it does not. The framers wrote it in a context where the death penalty was regularly done. Uh, the, the, the method at the time was hanging. Uh, it's, it's not unfair to say that hangings at that point in history often produced pain and suffering, um, and the framers were well aware of that when they wrote the Eighth. Gorsuch goes back into English history and explains that the Eighth was written to prohibit the kinds of things English kings did to people, drawing and quartering, burning at the stake, drowning, and that sort of thing. That is, oh, things days. that are profoundly terror-inducing, <clears throat> agony-producing, and meant to uh, sort of disgrace and uh, uh, reduce the humanity of the person to which they're done. We've got precedent in this case, and, and that is that if Buck Lew could have shown there's an alternative that would be less painful, uh, even from another state, the court would have said, use this one. But he didn't, and I suspect what his lawyer did was to roll the dice to say, well, let's just run the clock and then assume that the court's gonna stay it again or take your position, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they didn't. What's, what's really interesting beyond the uh, sort of history and strict construction, of course the other side says the death penalty shouldn't be something we do given evolving standards of decency and that sort of thing. Well, that's fine. If it's not, Congress can stop it. So can all 50 state legislatures. This is not, it is not the role of the Supreme Court to try to say that the Eighth Amendment in some wildly protracted way prevents the death penalty. There isn't a plausible argument for that. Any of the 50 states can stop it. We have in Illinois. Right. Uh, the federal government can stop doing it. The court can't tell people to stop doing it on the basis of a constitution written by people who accepted the death penalty as a perfectly appropriate thing when they wrote the Eighth Amendment. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there yeah. and uh, just <laughs> see if you guys want to fight about that for a minute. There's more. Yeah. It's really good, so but you have let, 10 let me um, let me fight about it on a different on a different. Uh -huh. Uh, it's not, not even fighting about it. Yeah. I, so the part that's weird to me about this is that it puts the burden on him. It seems to me like if the ban is on the government, right, if the government can't do something that is cruel and unusual, either the court decides that this form of execution is cruel and unusual, but to say to him, you, the burden is on you to figure out a way for us to execute you in a, in a non-cruel and unusual way, that seems weird to me, right? Like to say that, so, uh, you know, I don't know, I, to go back to asylum or whatever, you know, it, it, I'm trying to think, you know, to say to an immigrant that it's your job to come up with a way for the U.S. government to do this in a constitutional way seems very backwards. And it, it just, it doesn't seem like that's the question at hand. The question at hand is, is this form of execution cruel and unusual? That seems like a yes or no. 
Yeah, um, the, it doesn't the, seem like to say to him, you, like, it, it, in my mind, telling someone you have to come up with a way to execute mm -hmm. yourself in and of itself is cruel and unusual. That's a weird thing. Yeah, it seems well, like the, 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 the issue is, I don't know, I don't understand why that would matter. Mm -hmm. I, I, it seems like that's the government's burden to come up with a way to execute people that is not cruel and unusual, and that's not a burden that should shift to the person who's being punished. And But that's the interesting dimension of this case. They have met that burden repeatedly over uh, 20 years. That is to say, people have said, uh, lethal injection causes me to suffocate and, and that sort of, and, and the courts have said from trial court to the US Supreme Court, lethal injection satisfies Eighth Amendment uh, uh, scrutiny. That is, we can't think of a way that produces a less painful, less terror-inducing, less disgraceful way to die. And disgraceful is one of the words they use. So government has made its case, and the court has accepted it. And I guess what I'd go on and say is, interestingly enough, what they did in this case was to say, well, we've made the case, and the, answer, the short answer could be, everybody gets the lethal injection. But we're going to give you five years to figure out an alternative to that even by looking to another state, because we're gonna go the extra mile to try and satisfy Eighth Amendment. So he suggested he wanted to be uh, asphyxiated with nitrogen. Uh, what? That's complicated. This, this was the last minute thing, but, are, but are the evidence on it didn't demonstrate. I'll just do two more yeah, sentences. Yeah, yeah. The court said there's no evidence that that's a less painful way than the lethal injection. Right. So if the standard's so, lethal injection, the courts have approved it, the government's met its burden, and you say to a person, take five years and figure out if there's a better way to do it. I'm, I Believe me, I sound like a death penalty uh, advocate here. I'm not, I don't think we should do it. But I think the states and the legislature have to stop it, not what? some convoluted Eighth Amendment argument. Why wouldn't the court just allow that then? If they, I mean, if the argument is, this is, you know, you're mm -hmm. so he's arguing that for because of his condition, it's really painful, and he mm -hmm. says, "Use nitrogen on me." Uh, why would the court say no to that? You still have to do the other way. If he's come up with a way, because uh, that his, seems to go against their argument. Yeah, well, because his state doesn't do it. There's no state that currently does it. There's a couple of oh, states that have said, if the court ever says lethal injection isn't a thing that satisfies the eighth then we will turn to examining whether nitrogen asphyxiation is a better method. But the scientific, uh, and there was scientific evidence adduced in this case, very little by him, doesn't demonstrate that it's in any more humane way of dying than mm -hmm. lethal injection. So that seems, uh, that, that seems uh, as backhanded as his defense. So if his defense is, you can't do this because it hurts, and they say, find another one, and you're saying, well, they've intentional, he's, he intentionally didn't come up with another way mm -hmm. to avoid his execution, uh, for the court to say, find another way, and then when he does find another way, for them to say, yeah, all of those other ways don't count either, seems also well, I, like uh, you're, they're intending to arrive at, a, at, a, at the same point, right? Yeah, and, and it might be me not explaining this as well as I should. The court took the position that he didn't come up with another way. That is, the state isn't equipped to do it, there's no evidence that it's better, and the precedent suggests that it has to be better than the thing it replaces. And because there's no evidence that it's that, and because no other state has done it so that they could say, well, boy, this worked out really well for us when we did nitrogen asphyxiation rather than. Um, here, uh, here's mm -hmm. the rest of what the court said. Uh, there's real frustration 
about the time people spend appealing death penalty cases. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this is the more interesting dimension of the case to me. Um, I, I, I don't, please, I hope I don't sound insensitive about the guy that's, that's facing it, but um, Gorsuch went out of his way to say at the end, uh, a regime that puts people on death row for more than 20 years is problematic. Victims deserve better than to have somebody continue to do these kinds of appeals year after year, decade after decade. Again, whether you're for or against, this is a really powerful statement and it is not something we have heard from the Supreme Court before. Um, so it will be interesting to watch whether there is any pushback on this let's get going mm -hmm. with it argument that Gorsuch is apparently endorsing. Mm -hmm. mm, that's interesting, <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. All right, let's stick with the Supreme Court and talk about term limits. So a few weeks back, we kicked around some uh, some of the proposals that the Democratic presidential candidates have offered for overhauling the Supreme Court. Nearly all have signaled an openness to major changes on the court if they become president. Among the proposals are adding justices, rotating justices, and imposing term limits for life-tenured federal judges. A good example of this is Elizabeth Warren, who recently, when discussing the topic, stated, quote, First, they steal a Supreme Court seat, and then they turn around and change the rules on the filibuster on a Supreme Court seat. So when it swings back to us, what are we going to do? I think all options are on the table. So we thought it might be fun to discuss this approach, and in particular, the question of whether there should be term limits for the Supreme Court. Uh, Tom, I know that you see real value in life tenure, and you mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Explain your thinking on this. If there's a way of illustrating the potential to be as wrong as it is humanly possible to be, <laughs> I would simply point to Elizabeth Warren on this question. Um, every idea thus far produced by Democrats relative to the Supreme Court is catastrophically, are, are catastrophically terrible. And this is just as bad, even though it has the appeal of uh, a sort of, let's split the difference. If we're not going to pack the court, or, yeah. or something like that. So I want to make two arguments and, and see what you think of them. The first is um, term limits produce doctrinal instability. That is, if justices are rotating off, and, and the model typically is that every couple of years, one will get 18 years, which means everybody, every two years, we've got a new justice. Um, I, to the best of my knowledge, that's the model those who want term limits all want. Um, 18 years is a long time, but it gives us a rotation. Every president would get some nominees and that sort of thing. Um, here's the problem with that. It produces a more politicized court because it produces less stability in terms of precedent and doctrine. And uh, one doesn't usually do this on the podcast, but I'm going to give a citation here <laughs> because there's a terrific University of Texas Law Review article coming out by two people who essentially did the math on what it would have looked like had we had term limits starting in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided. And their conclusion, basically what they did was to say, let's look at the presidents who were elected thereafter, and let's assume they appointed people who had comparable ideologies. And then let's assume, and this is, these are big assumptions, but let's assume that those justices ruled consistent with some loyalty to the ideology that they were appointed with. Uh, and their conclusion is that Roe versus Wade would have been overturned in 1987. Um, that's the central argument in the article, uh, but they've taken a look at other precedents that have long standing and, and are important parts of American life. And I say this 
entirely without making a case for or against Roe versus Wade. But if, if you've got that little stability about things that have become central to American life because you've introduced term limits, I think that's a bad thing. The second argument that I'd make is term limits eliminate anti-majoritarian actions by the court. So we have two branches that are entirely majoritarian uh, and who do the will of the people. It's the court's job to stand up to those two branches when they act in ways inconsistent with the Constitution. Maybe I should go back and say inconsistent with my beloved Constitution. <laughs> um, but th this is an important point. Imagine a court trying to decide Brown versus Board of Education at a time when the public sentiment was overwhelmingly in favor of mm -hmm. continuing. Indeed, the, the NAACP didn't want to overturn Plessy and didn't want integration. They wanted genuine, separate, but equal, mm -hmm. taking the position that that would cause such economic turmoil, they'd probably end up with integrated schools. Thurgood Marshall said, God bless him, we're not going to do that. We're either going to the court to say the 14th Amendment says people are equal and we should all be that or not. So I guess I, I, my, my worry is you'd be changing an institution that has succeeded mm -hmm. in producing stable, reliable, long-term uh, precedent that changes only incrementally and the only reason we're talking about doing it is that Congress has abdicated its responsibilities to take up these issues on its own. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. So, go ahead. Bill. I have <laughs> stuff. I have stuff to say. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> First, he's introducing Elizabeth Warren next week, and wants not to be associated with a podcast that said she's so catastrophically wrong on this topic. She should not be taken seriously. Uh, so, I, I, I I'm gonna. Um, I'll, I'll use, uh, or I'll, I'll, I'm not going to use it against you. I'll, I'm going to re go back to points that we've talked about before. So on the census question, we talked about a couple of things. So you mentioned that you know you look sort of global standards. Most other mm -hmm. countries don't do it this way with mm -hmm. the census, right? Or most other qu countries do ask citizenship citizenship questions. Most other countries have term limits for their supreme courts, right? This is this is the this is not unusual to do, um, and so I I, I don't. I'm not saying that the points you're making wouldn't play out, but I don't think it would be necessarily as disastrous as we might, as, as, as you're maybe fearing it would be. Mm -hmm. Here's my, here's my defense of Elizabeth Warren. Um, uh, <laughs> and this is, uh, so uh, is it a general uh, defense or a specific defense? It's a general defense. Here, a general. Here's my, it's a, there's a caveat that goes with this. Cause I've, I've seen a number of articles in the last week who have made, that have made claims along the lines of, uh, you know, stacking the Supreme Court, like the democracy is on the line and we must stack the Supreme Court. And that seems uh, crazy to me, <laughs> the idea that in order to save democracy, we're going to you ruin know, it. Do, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Um, so but in, I, in you know, our direction, I, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the sort of overreaction um, concerns me. But here's, here's, the, here's my concern or here's my take on, on the Elizabeth Warren thing. There's a double standard at play, right? It seems to me one of two things is true. Either... The standards um, and the norms about how we fill, how we handle court appointments matter. They're important. In which case, Elizabeth Warren is correct. The Republicans have basically decimated or, you know, the, this, the longstanding traditions about filibusters and a president has a right to appoint um, a, a Supreme Court justice and the Congress should hear it. 
um, either the Republicans have, you know, whatever, de destroyed those or stepped away from those. Um, and, and, Eliz and, and Elizabeth Warren is right to say that they were wrong in doing so. Or those norms are stupid, right? And the Republicans have done nothing wrong. They've done whatever is within their power to, uh, to you know, gain court seats that, that, um, that benefit them. Or, in which case, if that's the case, then Elizabeth Warren, what she's suggesting if, is, hey, within our constitutional powers, let's do anything and everything we can to gain control of the court. So it seems like one of two things is, is happening. Either Republicans are wrong to have done this, right? In which case the criticism is correct, or they're not. They were just doing what is in their power to do, and Elizabeth Warren is doing the same thing. So the, the sort of, oh, Elizabeth Warren's getting upset about this, how stupid, seems, um, I don't know, I, I, don't, I, I don't fully buy that. She's basically saying, I should do what the Republicans have done. And it, either you're critical of her and the Republicans for what they've done, or you're not. And you say, this is fair game. Um, Republicans did it. It's fully within their power. And I'm not going to be critical of Elizabeth Warren because she's doing the same thing that Republicans have done for the past 10 years. I would fall into the camp of being critical of what the Republicans have done and what, what Elizabeth Warren is proposing to do to mm -hmm. say that th there should be some institutions that are above politics and the Supreme Court is one of those. And that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm well, I, I'm always open to conversations about tweaking the institutions to make the democracy better. I don't think this is the environment in which we should do so, right? I mean, the, right. we could talk about that's the, a great the, point. the Electoral College is not the, probably the best way to elect a president. I don't feel like we're in a place where we could really have a good debate about improving that. Mm. Same thing with the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm very, very uncomfortable with the idea of term limits or packing the court because it feels like all of those are just going to get pulled in a partisan direction and then this final institution which has tried to remain above politics is, is poisoned well i i oh i'm sorry no you're fine Please. um just re really quick i i mean i i think you're you're right on that bill this is coming in the context of a broader conversation of packing the Supreme Court and getting rid of the Electoral College and lowering the voting age to 16. Like these are, these seem like very obvious political tactics to me, which realistically, I agree. The Republicans are just as culpable for the situation that we're in as the Democrats are. But at some point there does need to be, this needs to stop. And regardless of what the Republicans done, these are foundational things, especially for, for the Supreme Court and that specific institution that would fundamentally shift how we, how we come at, um, uh, what's the word, how we handle uh, just the, the judicial system in our country. Uh, and that's gonna bleed into everything else. They want it to bleed into everything else. That's the, the entire makeup of this platform. I, I like, Again, everybody is responsible, and they're all assholes for putting us in this position. But I don't think this is the, like you said, this is not the right place or the right time to be having this discussion. I don't know when there is going to be a right time. Yeah, yeah. I just want to clarify a podcast rule because I feel I was told about a month ago by Phil that it was possible to hold two conflicting ideas <laughs> in your head simultaneously. So I'm going to just say, Phil, hold those two ideas in your. No. <laughs> Harry Reid oh. started this process. I'm with Nick. The, the, the parties are equally culpable in diminishing uh, and, and having joked many times about institutions. I, I don't disagree with you about the value of tradition and longevity and respect 
and those sorts of things. And at a time, you know, Nick, to your point, where the only of our three branches that I think has at least modest majority support, uh, boy, to now take that apart, uh, this is, I'm going to just use a word I've critical problematic yes <laughs> we need more yes we need more restraint that's in right. the actors in all of these institutions right. whether it's the president or the congress and irrespective of party yes right. absolutely mm-hmm. and i think the, the further down the road we get of, of getting away from that the more the more concerned i am yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. all right let's this is gonna be a fun one final fun topic uh <laughs> so we're gonna play a game it's it, gentlemen it's time to play one of our most favorite games it's what's more likely to happen in the next year i will give you two potential developments and you didn't need to tell me which one you think is more likely to occur in the next 12 months option number one the House of Representatives will get their hands on Donald Trump's tax returns. So last week, House Democrats requested six years of Trump's tax returns using the obscure 1924 statute, which allows for no exceptions to the committee's authority to ask for the ask the Treasury Department for any citizen's tax returns. What? <laughs> White House Chief of Staff Mike Mul- uh, Mick Mulvaney blasted the action and stated, quote, this is not going to happen. He sounded like Musetti, so this is going to happen. This is yeah. not going to happen. So, all right, option number two. We are not going to do this. <laughs> We're not going to do this. Uh, option number two, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas will retire in the next year. There's been much speculation that the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is contemplating retirement. This would allow President Trump to appoint a younger conservative nominee in his place. Yet Thomas pushed back recently and told an audience from the Pepperdine University School of Law that he has no plans to leave. So I ask you, gentlemen, which is more likely to happen? T- Phil, why don't we start with you? All right. <laughs> uh, so, all right. So, my, I, you know, I don't, I'm not a, a follower of the the sort of court rumors about who's going to uh, Thomas doesn't strike me as someone who, uh, I don't know, I maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't, I would be a little surprised if he stepped down. He seems like someone who enjoys what he does and doesn't, he's still relatively young. I don't see him going anywhere. On the other side, I'm going to take Tom's word that the court always rules according to the law and doesn't speculate about people's intentions and therefore will require that the Trump administration turn over the IR, the tax returns of Trump to the committee. So um, I, I'm, I, obviously I'm, I'm joking. I think that there will be a court fight, but I think that will happen. I, if I had to guess, I would guess that the the turnover of Trump's tax returns to the to Congress is more likely to 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 come about. There's all sorts of baggage that comes with that. I think that that the Congress may or may not have thought through, but I think that might be more likely. Mm-hmm. Nick, where are you at? This is a tough one. <laughs> <clears throat> I, well, I, I mean, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, the. Um, the Democrats were supposed to be, at least in in the context of the argument that they're having, they're supposed to be auditing the IRS's practices for evaluating a presidential candidate's tax returns. That's the method that they're going with, and not necessarily that they can just get anyone's tax returns. It was a, a weird kind of pseudo loophole that they found. Yeah. My understanding is that the law says that if there's a legislative purpose, they mm-hmm. can ask for tax yeah. returns. And so the legislative purpose they're using is there is a policy that says all presidents get audited. Right. Um, and there, I think the other one is their the broader sense of oversight. But yeah, mm-hmm. so they're coming up with an excuse. I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Two seconds and I'll let you go. Um, I, I, I mean, within the next year, I, I, I've, 
I really don't think we're going to get those tax returns. I, I just, so I, you're I think, pushing. you think neither. I think this is going to be a legal battle until the very last moment where it's, it's not going to matter anymore. I, just in the absurdity of both situations, I think it's more likely that Thomas steps down compared to, yeah, the release of the tax returns. All right, Tom, where are you at on this one? To pretend that there is a legitimate legislative purpose <laughs> in asking for six years of Donald Trump's tax <laughs> records is for Congress to be so absurd that they cannot be taken seriously anymore. There's that point. Is there too. Tom, really we don't somebody take into account intention? We don't know what yeah. they're thinking. We don't do that. We only take into account <laughs> intention where the statute uh, instructs us to do so. And here, the statute says, is there a legitimate intention? Uh, a, le a legitimate legislative effort. Mm -hmm. There's not. This this is, uh, there wasn't collusion, arguably. Uh, we haven't seen the report yet. There wasn't obstruction, arguably. We haven't seen the report yet. Let's move to the next thing. Let's try and get tax returns. I, I, I get what you're, I, I, I smell what you're cooking, Phil. <laughs> uh, uh, but I think you have to make a judgment if a 1924 statute says, in an effort to write tax law, you can request returns to make judgments about whether or not the law is appropriate that has anything to do with what's being done now. I don't think it does. I think this is uh, awful. And here's why I think it's awful. I, you know me. I am not a Trump guy. But we are driving people who might run for office out of politics by making it so toxic and awful an environment, including but not limited to, asking them for information most Americans don't share with their neighbors, this is just plain wrong, and it doesn't work for us. Now, let me go on and say this. Shakespeare, you go, girl. Shakespeare, one of the five most important people in Western culture, said in one of his plays, thou dost protest too much. <laughs> I find myself wondering if Clarence Thomas isn't protesting too much. That is, I wonder if, because Supreme Court justices never telegraph retirement. Mm -hmm. So you're left with things like, did they hire clerks for next year? Do they have an office cleaning budget for next year? <laughs> Those, I, I'm inclined to think that he is watching very carefully the polls uh, because the next appointment changes everything. That is, if it's Ginsburg that Trump appoints or if it's uh, the, the replacement for, or if it's Thomas who Elizabeth Warren replaces, the court shifts dramatically. So I'd be surprised if they got the tax returns before Thomas says, I'm worried about being replaced by Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't, we don't have, uh, we don't, I mean, we don't ever know like as openly what a Supreme Court justice thinks of different people, but right. Thomas's wife is a big Trump person, right? Yeah. Like that's a, so, I mean, the, the idea that's that fair. he would want to be replaced by a Trump appointment would make sense. Or that, somebody of comparable, I'm gonna just right. say it in a more neutral court loving yeah. way that he might like to be replaced by somebody with a comparable <laughs> judicial philosophy. <laughs> well, that's where I was going on this. I, I, I think Trump should release his taxes. I, I, I also think the Democrats have crafted this in a way where they're 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 pretty savvy on this. I, I don't no, think not. no oh. Democrats are never savvy. No, this is this is this they they have a legitimate Harry Reid killed the filibuster. No. Harry Reid Went nuclear. <laughs> you want Congress to start doing stuff. They're yeah, doing right. stuff. They're yeah. looking into IRS. Exactly. So, I, right. You know who's going to fall on this sword? Bernie Sanders. Right. Uh, when we found, find uh, out that his wife 
what did she do to that college? She bankrupted or something Is like that? Right, that? Oh. right. so what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I think we're going to get, eventually, tr I think they're going to get Trump's tax returns. But I think you're right, Tom, that I think the more likely, the more the one that's going to happen more quickly is Thomas retiring. And I think both for, he's been there a long time, but I do think his wife here matters. And mm -hmm. I'm one where I don't think that we should mm -hmm. say that a spouse influences your, your work. I think that's silly. But I, I think that's an important thing. For her, Trump's legacy matters. Certainly, they're thinking about this, and, and that, yeah, so I think it's more likely that it's the time. I'm sure she's talking about it. They want to go on a cruise, whatnot. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Thomas is the first one, but I think the taxes are coming out, too. And look, in fairness, it doesn't change the court at all mm -hmm. if Trump replaces Thomas. Yeah. Uh, it's, you can't be further right than Thomas or, or more conservative than Thomas. The likelihood is, given, and I don't say that in a disrespectful way, the likelihood is almost any candidate mm -hmm. would be slightly more moderate than Clarence and Thomas is. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not how it'll play out. But the big change is Trump replacing Ginsburg or a subsequent Democratic president replacing Thomas. Thomas. And I can't imagine that's not on his mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, can I, the other point that I want, the, what, the, the baggage that comes with the tax returns, if this House committee gets the tax returns, it doesn't change the fact that it is illegal to disclose that information. So I think people who think, if, yeah. if there are listeners or the American public who thinks that the committee getting their hands on Trump's tax returns means that we, the public, get to see them, that that is incorrect. And in fact, that's where I say, like they, that's where you, if they get the tax returns and there is something big in it and they were to leak it, they have committed a federal offense at that point. But so did, didn't well, Cory Booker a, do that right. fairly recently and take <clears> the <throat> position that there were bigger principles at stake <laughs> when he released things or, that were not intended for public consumption? Or they'll have a low-level yeah, aide do it, yeah. and that'll be the, the end of it, because they're really good at doing that, too. The fascinating thing will be to see what tax changes are produced by Congress's acquisition of, of Trump's. Donald Trump's. Yeah. Then we'll know for sure Isn't whether or not buried. there was a legitimate <laughs> legislative purpose in all, getting those tax returns. All our harassing back and forth here, Tom, I have an actual question here, which is that <laughs> one of the arguments that comes up with this is that uh, one of Congress's duties is is presidential over, like is you know, it was oversight. Yeah. So could you make an argument that the the um, legitimate purpose of their asking for his taxes? is related to their duties um, in oversight. And so that, that's, you know, a little less cynical, right? It's our job yeah, yeah, is yeah. To, to look into this. And so um, we have a, a legal right to do that as long as we're not mm -hmm. leaking them, right? We're, do, we're mm -hmm. fulfilling our congressional duty. Yeah, so I, it seems to me that jurisdiction here is probably in the DC circuit when it gets to the appellate level. And I think what they ask is, well, what did Congress say when they asked for these things? And, and I don't think that they have said, this is a matter of presidential oversight. I might be wrong about that. Um, I think they've, they've sort of relied on this 1924 statute and just said, we've got a legitimate legislative purpose. Um, so I don't know if the record is complete enough yet that a, a trial judge or an appellate court judge could say, well, yeah, right, this is oversight. You've told us that it is, and here's the sense in which it is oversight. That is, you think you've committed fraud or, or mm -hmm. something along those lines. or whatever. Emoluments, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. This is a tough one because it's it's certainly a political question if it rises mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. right. At the same time, you have a, a legislative interpretation of a law. Yeah, this, yeah, this is... A 1924 law. I know. I think God. the Democrats have finally learned a little bit from the Republicans. No, they haven't. A tiny, minuscule bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so this would be I an interesting think that, that your, your argument still applies. It's a 1924 law, but Congress could have changed it, and the president could they have... They could. Enacted. You're exactly right. But it's Amen. the law. The law Amen. is the law, and if yeah. they want to get the tax returns, they can. It may be a stupid law. 
but it's a law with a legitimate legislative purpose. You're, I mean, you're totally right. I I agree with you. But who interprets uh, man, that? I feel like people are going to think Phil and I don't like each other, and I <laughs> I can't wait to give Phil a big hug whenever he comes to Chicago. What you can't see is they're just giving each other the finger the entire time. I love these comments. Ditto. Ditto. Oh my God. Uh, I always feel like I learned something on these, and then I yes. leave exhausted. Mainly because the beers are really good, but also because of the conversations yeah. that we have when Tom is here. Um, on that note, um, do you get is that going? Is that a thing? That's, nope, that's the wrong one. Yeah, there we go. I have my there finger on the go. wrong thing. That's, I got that sounds it. better, Nick. <laughs> um, I can't be a DJ. Um, if you guys like the podcast, have questions about it, beer suggestions, uh, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Unda- uh, Untapped. Uh, look for Barstool Politics uh, on iOS or Android. Uh, the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then Predict It. Uh, if you weren't here at the beginning of the podcast, we are partnered with uh, Predict It, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics. We can buy and sell shares in future political events. Barstool Politics listeners, uh, if you use our promo link when opening up a new account, uh, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Um, so open up a $20 account. Uh, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I said, just use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash BarstoolPaul20, uh, and check it out. It's a lot of fun. And we want some of the things that we talk about as, as markets on there. That's a really good one. The Supreme Court is a great idea. The Supreme idea. Court is We've a really the, good one. we got to do more of that, yeah. Damn it, Predicted. <laughs> um, anything else, guys? No. Tom, thanks as always for joining us. Oh, my gosh. Fun. The highlight of my week. Every time I do it. Thank it's you. It's always the Thank highlight you. of our month because the beers are really good. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Oh, Cheers. oh, oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, the uh, Next week, uh, we're going to do a regular episode, but we're going to talk about the uh, the Democratic presidential candidates uh, and kind of go through that with uh, Dr. Suzanne Chan, I believe. Yes. Which we always enjoy having her on. So that'll be fun. So I'm proposing a podcast name for that one. Love Fest. (laughs) (laughs) Cory Booker. I'm going to go with that. (laughs) We'll see you guys next week.